This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Conklin Realty, currently showing a spacious, gracious executive colonial on the scenic Amityville Riverfront. Think you can't afford it? Think again. This beautiful four-bedroom, three-bathroom is priced to move. Once you go in, you won't want to get out. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, a double feature! The late night double feature, feature show. Amityville Horror from 1979 and its 2005 remake. And stick around at the end because we'll be having some spoiler talk on the last episode of Castle Rock Season 1. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Slash cards. It is officially the last week of Slash Cards, our 50th episode, our 100th movie, our 200th Slash Cards question. Well, we didn't do Slash Cards the first couple weeks. Sure we did. No, we didn't. Pretty sure we did right away, didn't we? We didn't do it in the first episode, that I know for a fact. Did we not? No. I could have sworn that we did. Oh, well. We didn't start doing it until after New Year's. Well, shucky dang darn. <laughs> Still, the 50th episode is quite a milestone, and we're going to stop here because we are honestly running out of cards that have questions that we haven't done, and I guarantee we've repeated them. Somewhere in here, at least one or two questions, at least we've done twice because we just totally forgot we asked that question already. We do four questions an episode. So, Kelsey, next episode, what are we moving to? Another horror card game that I found randomly, um, Horror Trivial Pursuit. Yes, there is a miniature version of Trivial Pursuit that has nothing but question cards and one die to choose a category and that's it. It's very, very similar to what Slash Cards is, but it's officially Trivial Pursuit branded, mm-hmm. and it's all about uh, horror movies. So look out for that next episode. We'll see if it's actually any good, because we haven't even played the game. But first, what's your Slash Card question for me, Kelsey? This first one's very easy. Okay. In 1988's Beetlejuice, how does one summon the titular bio-exorcist? They say his name three times. That is correct. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Well, he didn't show up. Did we do that? I feel like I did that in the episode when we discussed Beetlejuice. The third time we said his name, I feel like I did that. I had like some sort of sound clip of him appearing or whatever. I don't know. I feel like I did. Maybe go back and watch that episode. That's a good episode. Yeah, listen to that episode. (laughs) I like that episode. (laughs) It was fun. All right, Kelsey. Do me a favor and name just one horror movie that takes place in the Middle East. Under the Shadow. 
Very good. I'm glad you actually mentioned that one. That was a fun one. I really, I like that one. It's on our list. It's a little ponderous, but uh, it's novel in a few different ways. Mm-hmm. And I'd recommend it. So when we get to that episode, make sure you watch it. It's a good one. On the back of this, they recommend A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which we still haven't seen. Yeah, I've heard it's very good. I heard it's not really a horror movie, but I heard it's very good. Yeah. Under the Shadow, by the way, is about... A gin. A gin, yeah, which is not very common for horror movies. It's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And an unexploded bomb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, recommend you see that one. All right, Kelsey. We are going to be talking about, first up, Amityville Horror from 1979, directed by Stuart Rosenberg, written by Sander Stern, based on the book by Jay Anson, starring James Brolin, Margot Kidder, and Rod Steiger. What is Amityville Horror about? A year after a boy, or I guess a man, uh, kills his entire family in a house. Yes. Which really did happen. That's yes. That part of the story is absolutely true. Yeah, basically, yeah. A year later, a family, the Lutzes, move in and are only able to stay, I think it's like a month? 28 days, I think is what it is. And in that time, a lot of bad things happen to them. A lot of bad things happen. Well, a lot of bad things kind of don't happen. <laughs> Should people watch this movie before we talk about it? Look, it's a classic. Right, I feel like you have to because it's a classic. And I mean, it's a well-made movie. It is. I mean, I I just, I personally... No, it's boring as fuck, I think Kelsey. it's boring. It's boring. But... It is a classic. It's well done. And I would say James Brolin gives an incredible performance. He does. I really like his performance. So it's worth watching for that. And because it's a classic, you should probably watch it anyway. Just don't expect anything crazy. So, listen, if you're not feeling it, if it doesn't sound interesting to you, then don't watch it. We'll tell you everything that happens. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, not much. (laughs) This movie is two fucking hours long. It is, yeah, it's it's far too long. I will say this for it. I have read the book, and it stays pretty dang close to the book. Yeah, and the book is based on the supposedly true story of George and Kathy Lutz, the main characters of, the, of, of them, and Ed and Lorraine Warren, but they're not in this story at all. They're not in the movie at all. But they are, in, they they do get themselves involved in the original story, trying to confirm confirm the events, and it's all made up. It's all made up, folks. Spoiler Look, warning: It's all made up. Let's just put this out there. <laughs> the kids of the family have come out and said it didn't really happen. The lawyer of the family has come out and said it didn't really happen. But the yeah. parents refuse to admit that. And the Warrens are the only paranormal inspectors that said that it really happened. And they are known to embellish things from time to time. Right. My argument is, and always will be, Uh huh. we weren't there. And, you know, some people make the argument, well, how come nothing ever happens to anybody else? Well, if you actually believe in this stuff, it doesn't always just happen. It happens at certain times, at certain intervals, and who knows why. I'm not saying it really happened. I don't necessarily believe that it happened. I'm just not 
super quick to just be like, oh, what a bunch of bullshit. See, here's the thing, though. I don't believe in ghosts. And and I know you kind of do. If I saw one, I would immediately believe that I saw one. Right. You you wouldn't doubt yourself. I absolutely would. I know there are tons of things that lead perfectly rational people to believe that there are ghosts that they can explain. But there are explanations for. Uh, so when you have a story that's effectively debunked by actual witnesses, plus the claim is something I already don't believe is possible, then it's dumb. It's fake. It's dumb. But it, I mean, it's fun to create as a story. Like I, you know, I'm a, I'm a horror movie aficionado. So like, I like ghost stories. I just in no way whatsoever believe they're real. So when I see based on a true story, it does nothing for me. It all stems from the fact that the guy who killed his family one of his stories, and it's important to say one of because he has had many over the years, Yeah, is that voices were telling him to kill his family. Yeah. And the way the family died, it's a little odd. It's a little strange. Yeah, but then there's also like the litigious nature of the Lutz family where they made damn certain that they pursued every one of their rights and every last dollar they could get out of it, especially when the original claim is that they made it up so they could sell the story. Well, fuck, if it really happened to me, I would do everything I could to make all the money off of it. I understand, but the lawyer who's responsible for that kind of thing said, oh yeah, George and I made it up over wine or whatever, or a couple beers or whatever it was. I just, I so desperately want something to be real. <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I, I feel yeah. I can't say I believe it because I've never seen one. And that's really irksome because there's there's a person who desperately wants it to be real. And if it is real, what the fuck? Why right. haven't I seen anything? I don't know. I would play, if I had the, the resources and the time, I would play Vincent Price to you and scare you with oh. fake ghosts. <laughs> that would no, don't do you. that. Well, I wouldn't kill you. <laughs> Oh, you mean we don't have an open vat of acid in the <laughs> no, house? No, we don't. <laughs> Not in our wine cellar or whatever. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so all of that said, decide for yourself whether or not you want to watch this movie that is very long where nothing happens but is well made and has some good performances. And when we come back, we will talk about 1979's Amityville Horror. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore. What do you think? I love it. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry. Mommy, I want to go home. God's peace in this house. What do you want from us? The Amityville Horror. Rated R. Starts July 27th at the Southgate Valley, Washington Square and Foster Drive-In. Kelsey... Yeah. Get us started. What happens in the Amityville horror? So we start with the murders, and it, it does a lot of close-ups on the windows. So the windows kind of kind of look like eyes. It just I love the way they light them. You know? Yeah. That's cool. It's important to note that the murders took place at 315, because throughout the rest of the film, uh Brolin will wake up at 315 over and over and over again. That's when the ghosts come to life. Apparently. Yes. So a year later, Brolin and Kidder, a newlywed couple who are very much in love, 
are moving in to this house because it is this amazing house that somehow is in their price range. Well, they find out it's in their price range because a family was killed there. Actually, I guess they they already knew before they showed up. So while they're walking through the house with the realtor, it's kind of cool. They'll pause it and they'll show a gun shooting the kids and yeah. the family. I thought it was interesting. It's like making you think like this is where this murder took ha- happened. You know, and I always said like I would never care if I moved into a house with people that are killed in it, but then when you see something like that, I don't know if I could get those images out of my head. Yeah, I mean, if you see it, but why would you have seen it? No, I just mean, like, thinking about that stuff. You know, now that I've seen it in film version. Yeah. Anyway. So they buy the house. Yes, and he's going to move his job, which they're not really clear on what it is, but he's going to move his office into the cottage. We find out through the course of the movie that he has a business of some sort that he runs with a buddy of his. Mm -hmm. But he's going to work out of the basement so he doesn't have to rent out office space. And he's doing it for her She, because he's like, we really, like, even though this is cheap for yeah. the house, we really can't afford it. Right. But she desperately wants it. She has three kids. They are newlyweds, but she has three kids from a previous marriage. Right. And I don't think- the, We don't find out in this movie what Yeah, we don't find them. out what happened to him in this. Yeah. But it's made pretty clear that the realtor is afraid of the house. So there's obviously some beliefs in this town about this house. Yeah. So a month later, they are settling in, and they've asked a priest to come and bless the house. Yeah. But they go off gallivanting on their boat. And later on say, we they were there, we waited for you, and you didn't show up. You went on a boat trip out on the lake. <laughs> what do you mean you waited for him? <laughs> he shows up, and he can't find anybody, and then when he gets into So he the- just walks in. Well, because he's expected. They they asked him over to do this thing, and plus it's the seventies. So he goes up into the yeah. He goes up into the third floor room, which mm-hmm. is Amy's room, the little girl's room, the room with the eyes, mm-hmm. and uh, looks out the window and sees oh the they're outside. They're outside. Okay, well then I'll just get on with blessing this house. And immediately we start seeing flies at the window. The door he, closes on its own. He starts to sweat profusely. And then eventually, like, he's trying to bless the house. The flies come at him, like, all over his face. It's gross. They get in his eyes, his mouth. It's nasty. And then a voice says, get out. And so he does. (laughs) So this is a thing. Flies being associated with demons. There's a lot of different ways to interpret this, but... One of the, either the manifestations of the devil or one of the three lords of hell, however you want to say it, is um, Beelzebub, just like in Bohemian Rhapsody, Beelzebub had a devil put aside for me. Um, Well, originally it's Balzebub. Um, like if you ever heard the term ball, if you ever played Diablo, there's a demon named Ball, Uh, one of the lords of hell. Also, literally, it translates to the Lord of Flies. So, occasionally, when you're talking about hell and flies, you're possibly talking about Beelzebub. Even though no demon is ever mentioned by name in this, and you never see them. 
Um, he gets really sick after that. He tries to call the family to let them know you need to get the hell out. But when he is on the phone, all he gets is static and immediately his hand gets covered in boils. Yes. So this poor priest. <laughs> yeah, he hears that voice saying, get out. And then get out. Get out. Yes. Yeah, and he runs out. So he, he just has a, bed, a lot of bad things happen to him. Yeah. Right after that, that night, Brolin gets sick and he's always freezing yeah, cold. Yeah, he, he looks freezing yeah. and, he, and he complains that it's cold. And no he's like, the house is, is supposed to be well insulated. What the hell? They're at a, he's like, it's 72 in here. It feels like it's 32. Yeah. He goes downstairs to the basement and Matt, one of the little boys, follows him down there and ends up tripping on the stairs and knocking out the light. And Brolin has to carry him off to to bed, uh, and that this is the scene where Brolin and Kidder fuck. Yeah, we they, see Kidder's boobs. Yeah, they but they fuck in front of those mirrors, and I got to talk about those mirrors. <laughs> I had those mirrors in the hallway of my house growing up. It's like large, you know, one foot or so, or maybe fifteen inch square panels mm -hmm. that are pieced together that have like gold plating on them uh like why veins. would anyone want that on a mirror because you can still basically use it and it's decorative it just looks dirty yeah it's so like it was old when i lived there in the 80s so I don't know if it was common in the 70s or if it's even older than that. I think it's a 70s thing. It might be a late 60s thing. Yeah. I do remember it being in certain houses when I was a little kid. Yeah. But I haven't seen it in years and years and years. They get interrupted by Amy complaining that she wants to go home and Kidder puts her to bed and is like, you are home. You skipped one of uh, the cutest lines. Oh, yeah. Brolin says, you make me feel like a kid in the backseat of a car. Yeah, it's kind of cute. They're very cute together. So when Kidder puts Amy to bed, she notices that Amy's window is open and she closes it. And the chair begins to rock by itself. Right. And the doll yeah. she had is now in the chair. Well, because Brolin wakes up, this is the first time he wakes up at 3.15, I think. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we see the time. He gets out of bed, he puts pants on, he hears whispering, and so he goes to Amy's room, and he sees that the window's open. And he goes to close the window. And then we see a doll on the chair that we saw was empty when Kidder went in there. And he goes and he takes the dog for a walk and he checks the boathouse because the door is like swinging open and banging in the breeze. And then he goes back inside, lights up a cigarette, and he's scared by a black cat screaming at him. <laughs> so then uh, the next day he is busy um, chopping wood because he just can't get warm. Yeah. He needs that fire going, going, going. So he is chopping up wood. Kidder comes home with groceries and tries to get his attention, but he won't. He do, he doesn't seem to hear her. So she comes up and pats his butt or whatever. And he turns and he's got a crazy look on his face. And he's like, "Don't ever do that to a man with an axe in his hands." <coughs> Don't ever do that Not to a man with an axe in his hand. Yeah, he's very grumpy and visibly so. Yes, and he's she, looking pretty shitty. She tries to stay playful. He's not having it. And then it takes her yelling at him. You've got enough wood here to heat the whole South Shore. 
that makes him snap out of it, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, why am I yelling at you?" Yeah, like, let me let me help you with the groceries. You go inside. I'll take care of the groceries. Don't worry about it. And he's he apologizes to her. Then Amy talks to Kidder about Jody. So this is the first we hear about Jody, who is Amy's invisible friend. That's all we know her as. Uh, in this process, Kidder calls the priest to find out why he never showed up, and another younger priest. Uh, of course, we know the, the priest did show up. Another younger priest answers and says he can't come to the phone because he's sick. The toilets flood with this black goo all around the house. And it's at this moment that Aunt Helena shows up. Aunt Helena is a nun. At some point, either before we talk about Jody or after, Brolin finds out that Kidder's aunt is coming. And he, he gets really mad. Damn inspection and we're not even ready. And I mean, it is kind of a shitty thing to do. Right. And it's obviously he doesn't, he thinks she's very stern and judgmental. Well, I would be pissed if you, if we were in the middle of unpacking and you were like, oh, I've got friends coming over. I'd yeah. be like, no, you fucking don't. <laughs> yep, totally. But also Kidder sniffs at the air and this comes up maybe once more. She's supposed to be, according to the book, she is supposed to be smelling perfume. Right. But I think a jealousy subplot wouldn't really make much sense here it would have too much effect on kidder's personality it's not a jealousy thing what is it she comes to think that it's the spirit of a woman who is nice Uh uh-huh and it is not okay well that was completely cut from this movie So, so so my question is why have her sniff the air at all because it's still something that's unsettling and there's an odor in the air I think that can still be unsettling, even if it doesn't lead directly into something that they ended up cutting. Anyway, so the nun comes, as Chris said. She gets a bad feeling, just like the priest did. Immediately. And uh, she rushes out on them and insists that she can't stay. And vomits on the side of the road. Right. So we next see Kidder painting, and Brolin makes a fire, which we will see him do a lot He chops wood, and he tends to the fire in the fireplace. And he starts to look real crazy. He just stares at it. His hair is nuts. Yeah. His eyes are huge. His face is pale. He does a great job, as Chris said. Mm -hmm. Kidder checks on him, but he's very, very distant. That night, he can't get it up. And Kidder tries to comfort him, and it's like, it happens all the time. And, of course, the response is, well, not to me. You know? And it, it, it makes him feel, like, you know, inadequate or shitty. And she tries to comfort him. And this time at 3.15, it's Kidder who wakes up. And she screams. She was shot in the head. And then immediately falls back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Which wakes Brolin up, and that's when he notices it's 3.15. Should we talk about the odd nature of the murders that actually happened, now that we've said that? Yeah, it's something that's unexplained. You want to... So, the son killed two brothers... Two sisters and both of his parents. Yeah. That's six people. All of them were on their stomachs, face down, asleep. It doesn't look like there was any sort of struggle at all. How on earth Uh did he go through the house Mm -hmm. and shoot six people and no one woke up? The explanation is that it happened during a thunderstorm. So... The gunshots could not be clearly dis- discerned, especially while they're sleeping, over the sound of thunder. Okay, I've been around guns, and so have you. Do you yeah. believe that? 
I guess if you're asleep, although a very loud crash of thunder would probably wake you up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're right. It's it's unexplained. And none of the neighbors heard it either. Yeah. I mean, that's more believable in a thunderstorm. Especially since they don't exactly live right next door to somebody. But they have said, neighbors have said they heard the dog barking. Yeah. So it's it's very, it's very strange. Okay. So the next day, the priest has the younger priest. I'm going to refer to them as old priest and young priest. <laughs> the old priest has the younger priest drive him because he's still not feeling well to the house. He insists they must get back to the house immediately, at which point the car goes wildly out of control. It cannot brake. It doesn't respond to the accelerator. The steering starts going crazy and the hood flies up to where they can't even see. And the priest sees a fly on the windshield mm-hmm. during this process. Uh, they crash kind of safely on the side of the road and nothing actually ultimately happens to them, but they never make it back to the house. That's the important part. Then there's this whole subplot of Kidder's brother getting married and it's kind of, it's in the book, right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's. It's kind of pointless. They could have taken it out. Right. Well, I think it leads to an important, a couple important things. Okay. Um, number one. Oh, the babysitter. Yes. So it gives them a reason to get out of the house. And, and we'll get to there. But Jimmy's getting ready for the wedding at their house. And he's counting money over and over again. Kidder makes fun of him for it. But the next time they go to check for the money, it's just gone. And Brolin says, well, it's here somewhere. So here's what's ha- here's what's going to happen. I'm going to write the guy a check. He's the the caterer. And Jimmy's like, uh, he only wants cash. He specifically asked for cash. And he's like, well, he's going to have to take, take a check or nothing at all. And Brolin, sorry, Brolin is like, I'll take care of it because the money's here and I'll just take the money. But I'll, I'll cover you with a check. But he looks terrible. And Jimmy is like, dude, you don't have to do this. I understand you're sick. And he's like, no. And he insists on going through with it. As they leave, we get a shot of the couch where Jimmy was sitting when he was counting the money as if the couch ate the money. Yeah, there's no explanation for it in the film and there's no explanation for it in the book. The, mo- the money just disappears. Right. So the two young boys go with them to the wedding, but Amy is left with a babysitter. The babysitter gets locked in Amy's closet when Amy's being put to bed. She ends up getting locked in the closet by an unseen force. And Amy doesn't do shit to she let her out. She just stares. Because we find out Jody told her not to do anything. Yeah. But there's no explanation why Jody would have anything against the babysitter for any reason. So she just sits there. Amy does as the babysitter cries for help. She pounds on the door. Her hands in the door get bloody in the process at the wedding. Brolin is having a real hard time. He's like retching in the bathroom. The caterer shows up and he's like, where's my money? He's like, I'm going to write you a check. And he's like, no, you're not. I asked for cash. And he's like, well, you're going to accept a check or you're going to eat your own damn food. And he gets like really aggressive. Listen to me, pal. I don't like lectures. And I don't like being hassled in the men's room. I'm going to write you a check. Either that's good enough for you, or you're going to eat your own goddamn food. And we see a little bit that, like, Brolin is really 
degenerating and he's yes. getting really grumpy all the time and super aggressive. And Kidder kind of over like sees this and she's like, okay, you're in bad shape. We're going home. Mm-hmm. And they take the kids and they leave early and they get home and they find the babysitter in the closet hysterical. This is when Amy says, Jody wouldn't let me open the door. Mm-hmm. Brolin yells at her. Jesus Christ. What the hell are we standing here listening to? And weren't you told to go to bed? Go on, get out of here. These kids of yours need some goddamn discipline. And storms off. And then Amy tells Kidder that Jody doesn't, Jody like, doesn't George. like George. <laughs> George yelled at me. Well, you should have opened the door. Jody doesn't like George. He goes downstairs to look for the money, and all he finds is the money roll, no cash. Now we have a scene with the priest and a couple of other priests. This is a pointless thing that goes nowhere. Well, but damn, (laughs) does that priest put every inch of acting in his soul into this scene? He really, really does. He does a great (laughs) job. So this higher-up priest in the church, like, just does not believe old priest. And that gets the priest super angry. And then young priest fucks him over by saying, oh, the wheel wasn't working. He was in the car. Yeah. He knows what happened. He just well, doesn't want to seem like a crazy person. Exactly. He sees what's happening to the old priest and he's cowardly. He and he also he also doesn't want to contradict the more influential priest who's chewing out the old priest. Like there's obviously a hierarchy that you're not supposed to cross, and the old priest is doing it by insisting that they do something about this haunted house. I really don't like this scene because it makes me super like like there's no reason for this higher ranked priest to be such a fucking asshole. It's also surprising because usually the argument is that church wins over education, right? Yeah. And that's what old priest is trying to say. He's saying, look, I'm educated in psychology. Yeah. If this was me, like, I would know if this wasn't real. You're right. I've seen it. It is real. Like, I think the high-ranking priest is saying, like, you know, I don't like you because you're just some educated asshole coming in acting like a godly man. I put my faith in God, not in man. You put your faith in man, too. And, like, it's talking down on education. But you're right. Old priest is saying education doesn't explain this. Mm -hmm. This is... This is a religious issue. What I saw there was real! I am not some pink cheat seminarian who doesn't know the difference between the supernatural and a bad clam. I am a trained psychotherapist. I went into that house, and what I saw there was real. What I felt there was real, and what I heard there was real. Now, gentlemen, I have a family in my parish that's at great risk. And they are facing real danger. So good. Yeah, no, he acts his damn heart out. <laughs> we get the 11th day, a Thursday. <laughs> this is when Brolin's business partner shows up, and I will hear throughout refer to him as business partner, I think. I don't think I ever got his name. It might be Andy or something like that. But he doesn't make it into the house because his wife is afraid of the house. Yes, she refuses to go inside because it gives her the creeps. Uh, so, But he talks to Brolin outside, who is chopping wood Mm -hmm. to sign the payroll checks. He hasn't been to the office this entire time, almost two weeks. He just keeps chopping wood. And the partner has nothing but bad news. (laughs) 
<laughs> and eventually Brolin says, don't you have any good news? And he goes, actually, I do. I bought the spotlight for your for your boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the partner is a really cool guy. Yes. And he is being more than reasonable. Mm-hmm. And Brolin, this contrast with Brolin being a total dickhead to him and we're we're supposed to understand it. And I think this movie does a very good job and Brolin's acting does a very good job of changing throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And so you know he's a good person. Mm-hmm. And so you are concerned when he's this grumpy. Mm-hmm. And he throws an axe for some stranger. Yeah, he does an axe throw like in a competition <laughs> and it sticks in the wood. And then a window crashes on one of the kids' hands, and they have to go fi- save the yeah, kid. And they cannot get it open, and they end up taking the kid to the emergency room, but no bones are broken. And Brolin finds that amazing, and he mentions it to Kidder. Kidder, in the middle of the night, decides this is the time to say, hey, you know what? You're right. There were no broken bones. Don't you find that weird? He doesn't even wake up. He has a nightmare about flies being all over him. Yeah, at 3.15 again. Mm-hmm. Um he finds flies infesting a room, like, really, really bad, and he can't open the window again. This is when the front door is blown violently off the hinges and outward towards the front yard. Amy sneaks up on them, and Brolin snaps at her again. Mm-hmm. He tells Kidder to call the police. He goes back to that room with the flies, and it is empty. Mm-hmm. So we know he was hallucinating. The window is open, and it slides easily closed. The police do show up, including a sergeant, another character who goes fucking nowhere. It's this weird, there's these weird plots. There's the priest plot and there's the sergeant plot. And they're kind of separate from everything that happens to the Lutzes. Like they interact with them once or twice, but their storylines happen independent of them. And then they converge at the end of the movie to no end. Oh, there's another thing I wanted to mention. Uh Uh-huh. In real life, the priest swears that this stuff actually happened to him. And really? I find it hard to believe that the priest would lie about that. Yeah, but oftentimes religious people are apt to... I think they over-embellish it quite a bit, but he did get violently ill. And I think his car did flip out randomly and stuff like that. Uh, He hides his identity for a 1979 interview. On December 18th, 1975, the day that the real Lutz family was moving into their new Ocean Avenue home in Amityville, a Catholic priest allegedly came by to bless the house, supposedly at the request of Kathy Lutz. On October 4th, 1979, a little more than two months after the release of the movie, the investigative television program In Search Of featured an episode that included an interview with who they claim is the real Amityville priest. But as he is unidentified, there's no way to verify. He wanted to remain anonymous, so his face was kept hidden. I was blessing um, the sewing room. It was cold. It was really cold in there. And I thought, gee, that's, this is peculiar. You know, because it was a lovely day out. And, and uh, it was winter, yes, but I, it didn't account for that kind of coldness. I, I also sprinkling holy water. And I heard a a rather deep voice uh, behind me saying, get out. It seemed so directed toward me that I was really quite startled. I felt a slap at one point on the face. 
I felt somebody slap me and there was nobody there. Unlike in the movie, the priest never mentioned encountering flies in the home. Mm -hmm. At some point after his visit to the Lutz home, the In Search of episode reveals that he discovered unexplained blisters festering on his hand. I went to the doctor for it, yes, and he couldn't explain it. He thought it might be caused by anxiety, and of course that's, that's feasible. Um, but I, I don't think I'm given over to psychosomatic responses. The priest was later revealed to be Father Ralph Pecoraro, and like most things related to the Amityville haunting, his story became shrouded in controversy as well, mainly due to the various contradictory claims he made regarding his involvement with the Lutz family, specifically when he testified in the Lutz versus Weber trial. This is from historyvershollywood.com. There's a whole article they have on the Amityville horror, and this is one section of it. So he might not be the real priest. He might not actually be telling the truth. Anyway. So the police show up. The sergeant's there. This is an hour into the movie and they're introducing a new character. (laughs) We find out a few things. The basement door is likewise broken. The dog is in the basement whining and scratching at the base of a brick wall. The sergeant doesn't believe anyone broke in because there are no broken windows in the basement, and it would have been easier if they were already in the house to open the front door if they were trying to get out than it would have been to blow it off. So it's not like they broke in and needed to rush out because there's nowhere that they could have broken in except for the front door, which blew outwards. So none of this makes any sense to the sergeant. The sergeant says that there will be a tighter patrol near their house. And it looks like he just sits in his car outside watching the house. Amy tells Kidder, her mom, that Jody told her about the murders. And that Jody wants Amy to stay at the house so they can play forever and ever. That's a little creepy bit. This is when Brolin rushes off on the motorcycle to get the blueprints of the house. He stops by a library and steals a book. Uh, Kidder calls the Priest again, he hesitates answering, and he looks at his bandaged hand, which was burned the last time he tried to talk to her on the phone. Uh, He tries to warn her, but they're static again, and he begins choking again. Kidder prays to God for help. A stranger shows up with a six-pack in order to welcome them. He looks like a bum. He keeps sniffling. She locks the screen door and goes to answer the phone when it rings, but it's just static again. That's the priest trying to call her again. And when she goes back, the man's gone. It's at this point that Brolin goes to the bar, which is called... The Witch's Brew. That's really cute. I know. I like that a lot. Me too. He goes there to meet his business partner who wants to find out what's happening since the business is kind of going to shit. The bartender notices Brolin and says, holy shit, you look a lot like the guy who killed his whole family. Because that is what he did. The the real guy... Went to the bar after he killed his family uh-huh. and told him that somebody killed his family. Yeah. Brolin and his business partner get into a fight when the business partner pushes him too far about his behavior and he punches him. But he quickly apologizes and he's like, I don't know what's going on. I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. The friend, uh-huh. after as soon as after he's punched, he goes, now can we talk? Yeah. Like a good friend right. would. Right, right. Yeah, no, he's a very good friend, and he's a really cool guy. Uh, Too bad, at a certain point, he just fucking leaves the movie, never to be heard from again. Fucking this movie. (laughs) But so, yeah, so Amy's talking about Jody again, and 
this is the first time that Kidder, I think it's the only time, Kidder sees Jody. But she doesn't really see shit. All she sees is flashing lights. Yeah. For eyes, I guess. Yeah. Now, I think it's important to say that in the book, Jody is like this weird pig face thing. Yes. Which they change in the second one as well. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and in in Lord of the Flies, the book, interestingly, um, there is a pig's head covered in flies. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's just my own connection. I don't know if anybody else has made that connection, but yeah. Oh, totally. I, I get a lot of Lord of the Flies right. connections. So Brolin goes back to the business partner's house after the bar and talks to the wife. And he shows her the book that he stole from the library. And it kind of goes over like spirits and hauntings and stuff like that. And the wife concludes that it's the spirit of the dead. Is this when she gets possessed? No. Oh. That comes later. Okay. That comes in the last scene where we see them. The partner dude offers to watch the kids so the parents can just get out of the house for a little bit. Uh, They all go to the house. The wife senses the bad vibes again, just like Helena, just like the old priest gets these bad vibes, but does go inside and says they're coming from the basement. Kidder says they should take the partner's offer, but he brushes her off and says they have to check the fire first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He has to check the fire first. Uh, The wife explains the story of this place that they kept people in pens and then left them for dead. It's, I wasn't clear on it's it. It's really glossed over, mm-hmm. like super fast, and they never mention it again. Mm-hmm. While she and her husband are down in the basement and and Brolin is is tending to the fire in the fireplace upstairs, she goes nuts. I wouldn't say nuts. She just gets really excited and says it's behind this wall and starts knocking down this brick wall that the dog's been clawing at. And she starts to knock it down. Brolin interrupts angrily. And she's like, that's where it is. That's where it's coming from. And he goes and Kidder's like, what the fuck is going on? And he's like, no, 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 wait. She's right. (laughs) There's something beyond this wall. And he fully knocks it down. There's a red light behind the wall. And then Brolin sees himself. I thought it was the devil. No. It's his brother, with a fake beard on. Really? I thought that was like a devil. It's the, Yeah. See, you can tell how ineffective it was. <laughs> they chose Brolin's brother because he looks so much like him, but he didn't have a beard. So they put a fake beard on him, and then it just didn't look... It looked like Brolin shaved his beard and then put a fake beard on. But it's so since it's fake, it's so clean and neatly trimmed that it's kind of like you would expect that to be a representation of Satan. So I can see how you would get that. But no, it's actually... Brolin's brother, and which is supposed to be like a representation of him. The wife, the business partner's wife, looks in, starts freaking out, and she shouts in like this possessed voice that it's a passage to hell. Find a well. <laughs> it's the passage to hell. <laughs> about you but i felt like evil dead stole their uh possession 
Sure. Uh, it sounds very much like it sounds that. Sounds just yeah. like the possession voice from But I mean you could argue that. that this is reminiscent of The Exorcist. A little bit. A little bit. It's a little more manly in this. It's like a man's voice coming out of her. It reminded me way more of The Evil Dead. Yes. So we cut to the old priest. He's having another headache attack. And he gets a call, but no one's there on the other end of the line. That's the end of that. Brolin and Kidder go around. They find the upside down cross in the house and they use it. Well, they find the cross in the house upside down and they use it to go around blessing the house on their own. This is the point where Kelsey and I asked, what the fuck happened to the other couple? Yes. Don't worry. You never see them again. They just disappear. We don't know where they went. Nobody ever again mentions the fact that she was possessed and sounded like a man. Right? Nothing. <laughs> they never mention it again. While they're going around blessing the house, the sergeant is outside again watching them. The cross is pulled out of Brolin's hand by some invisible weight. And Kidder goes to pick it up and she notices boils on her hand. She runs to the bedroom mirror, that mirror, and she sees the boils all over her face and she freaks out. Mm -hmm. Then we see the old and the young priest praying. The plaster angel in the church starts to crack and crumble and the priest freaks out. This is when he goes blind. Like in Rosemary's Baby. Yes, very good. Satanists can cause you to go blind. Very good. But the camera cuts back up to the angel and we see that it's completely intact. Brolin wakes up at 3.15 again. He hears a marching band. I called him Crazy Face Brolin at this point. Yes. We don't see what happened with the boils, but it must have been fake because they went to bed and now she's fine with no explanation of what happened. Again, Like, it's just the movie doesn't even fucking try. I guess they thought, well, it's already two hours long. <laughs> um. They, they don't mention the red room or the red passageway. They don't mention the other couple. They don't mention the boils. Nothing. They're just back in bed. Kidder gets up and she goes to Amy's room and she finds that Brolin has axed her in her bed. He axes her in her head. And then she wakes up and Brolin's just in bed sleeping. Mm -hmm. uh, she wants to get out of the house, but Brolin refuses and he ends up hitting her. And he goes back to feeding the fire. You're she the one runs that off. wanted the house. Yes. Uh, just like in Insidious. But you feel a lot more for what's-his-face in Insidious because he's like, what do you want me to do? I've done everything. I moved houses for you. Like, what else can I possibly do? And you're saying I that I don't believe you. Totally different conversation. Insidious is awesome. Anyway, he goes back to feeding the fire. She runs out with a bloody nose and she goes straight to the priest. This is when we find out that they have a past relationship, but we don't find out what that relationship is, except for the fact that he's helped her through tough times in the past, and she really needs to see him. But the young priest is, is there to interrupt her, and he claims that the old priest is on vacation, and when she pressures him, he says it's out of his hands. But he doesn't explain why. The sergeant is following Kidder, but then he ends up following the young priest who she spoke with. The young priest visits the old priest to read him his mail and says, hey, one of your old parishioners showed up. 
or wrote, he says, wrote, I can get her address and then you guys can meet. Would you like that? But the old priest just doesn't say anything. He doesn't answer. He doesn't respond in any way. I'm sorry. She's not an old parishioner. She's an old patient of his. That's the relationship. Sorry, they just reveal it a little bit later. When the young priest leaves, the sergeant confronts him about the old priest. He says something doesn't add up. He can't figure out what Kidder means by them being old friends. He doesn't know what the relationship is, even though we knew she's just an old patient of his. And that's the end of both of their storylines. We just never see either the sergeant or the young priest or the old priest again. They converge and then they stop. If you didn't want your movie to be two hours long, maybe take a little bit of them out. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyways... Kidder's in the library. She's reviewing old newspaper microfiche about the murders. She sees a picture of the murder, and it is very obviously James Brolin. Mm -hmm. She races home. Brolin is doing yard work, and the wind starts blowing. The dog is barking at rumbling happening in the red passageway. It's now nighttime and raining. Brolin takes an axe out to the boathouse when Kidder shows up at home. She freaks out and runs through the house to check on the kids. Turns out Brolin was securing the boat to the dock in the boathouse because of the bad weather. He comes back inside, and as he's going in, he sees a giant pig's head in the window. I must have missed that. It is huge, and it takes up the entire window. Wow, I don't, I didn't notice, I didn't Yeah, it's really weird and out of nowhere. <laughs> That's supposed to be Jody. Yeah. But they don't explain it. It's one of these adaptation things where they just put it in because it's creepy, but because there's no explanation, you don't know why it's creepy. And that's kind of unfortunate. Uh, anyways, he gets inside and the walls start bleeding, like you say. He's carrying the axe. He shouts for Amy. He goes to her room. He starts chopping at the closet door and finds all of the kids huddled up inside. Kidder jumps on him to stop him, and it looks like she's in age makeup or something. I think this is supposed to represent that he sees her as a demon-faced thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the motivation to kill them. Much more goes on about this in the remake than mm -hmm. what we see here, because that's all we see of that. No explanation. Mm -hmm. He throws her down to the ground. He swings his axe at her, but he doesn't actually hit her. She scrambles away. Scambers? Scrambles away. And he misses, it sticks in the ground, and she screams, don't hurt my babies, at which point he snaps out of it. Mm -hmm. He asks her, like, Amy? And he says he'd never hurt her. So then they're running out of the house. They slip down the bloody stairs, which is really funny. <laughs> yes. After minor trouble not being able to find the keys, they get into the van and the they keys! drive away. Yeah, the, the keys! keys! The keys! <laughs> Can never find the keys. <laughs> no, ever. As they're driving away, Brolin stops the van. He runs back to the house after the dog. Because Amy says, what about the dog? Which is exactly what I was thinking. Uh -huh. she, she says, I want Harry. And I wrote, I want Harry too. <laughs> Damn straight. This isn't save the cat. Save the dog. He goes down into the basement. And as he's walking down the stairs, he falls through them, which is the Red Passage. He falls basically into the Red Passage and a pool of blood oil something. It's very dark red and it's very thick like oil, maybe blood. He tries to crawl out, but he can't get out, at which point the dog attacks him. And he's like, no, Harry, no, Harry. It's Harry or Henry? Harry. Harry. But 
we find out that even though the dog's growling and has snapped at him, what he's done is he's grabbed him by his forearm forearm of his jacket and he's pulling him out. He's growling at what's happening and he wants to save Brolin. Harry is fucking dope. <laughs> I love Harry. He's so cool. Um, Brolin picks up the dog and jumps over the hole in the stairs and climbs him out of the basement. But the front door closes and won't open. He throws something through the window and carries the dog out of the window and back to the van. And we get an end title card. It says, George and Kathleen Lutz and their family never reclaimed their house or their personal belongings. Today, they live in another state. Like, that's it? Yep. I know I ran through all those items and it seems like a lot happened, but I literally wrote down everything that happened. Brolin gets violent with an axe. He doesn't chase anybody, but he does find them in a closet. Kidder tries to stop him, and he immediately snaps out of it, and they run away. Oh, what about the dog? He goes to get the dog, and he falls in some blood. He grabs the dog, and he gets out, and they actually drive away. That is all that happens. There is no tangible villain there is practically nothing at stake. There's no reason given why he snaps out of it. They just get fed up and leave finally. That's it. And as they're leaving, things start to become tangible and the walls bleed or whatever. And I guess we're, that's supposed to scare us? But it's not scary. I'd say it's moody. I, I mean, James Brolin is creepy. Yeah. No, like I said, he's great. I love him in this. I think he's awesome. He's a very manly man. Lumberjack. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. Anyway, here's another thing that's awesome about James Brolin to lead us into lightning round. He agreed because the movie was like seriously low budget. He agreed that he wasn't going to take as much as he normally would. In exchange, he was going to get 10% of the gross of this movie. The movie was a huge hit inexplicably <laughs> i guess nobody had anything to do that weekend mm -hmm. uh, at the time it was top 10 of all time like it was huge which ended up meaning he earned 17 million dollars for that movie which is equivalent of about 55 million dollars today mm -hmm. very nice he basically got what jack nicholson got for batman mm-hmm he got merchandising rights, and well, that was huge. I mean, like, I would compare that kind of surprise to uh, Paranormal Activity. That was extremely low budget, and then it was yeah. enormous. Mm -hmm. Same with Another Blair movie Witch. where fucking nothing practically happens. And Blair Witch. <laughs> right. But nothing at least, happens in these But movies. at least people die in those movies. Aside from the story of the death of the DeFeos, nobody dies in this movie. Practically nobody gets hurt. Every injury goes away except for the priest going blind. The When the kid gets the door, the window slams on his hand. No bones are broken. He ends up just fine. The boils go away. Like, fucking nothing happens in this movie. I don't get, like, it, it, there's that scene in the first Treehouse of Horror from The Simpsons when 
Bart's complaining that the raven isn't very scary, and Lisa explains, well, people were easier to scare back then. Lisa, that wasn't scary, not even for a poem. Well, it was written in 1945. Maybe people were easier to scare back then. Oh, yeah. Like when you look at Friday the 13th Part 1. It's pretty tame by today's standards. Do you have any lightning round items? I have a couple. No. The family that lives in the house now replaced the evil eye windows. Yep. Because it got too much attention, and they're like, fuck it. They just put normal windows up there. Apparently, neither James Brolin nor Margot Kidder believed the story of the Lutzes, even though they met and spent time with them. They said they really liked them, but they're highly doubtful of the actual story. The Weber-Lutz lawsuit is that the attorney, the year this came out, sued the Lutzes, charging them with fraud and breach of contract. He's the one that said they made up the story. He said they agreed to work together to write the book, but they reneged on the agreement. He told the Associated Press that he and the Lutzes made the story up over, quote, many bottles of wine. So, Kelsey, hmm. what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes, even though it was on the screen several times and you probably saw it? I didn't. What do you think it got? Well, people love this movie. It was a huge blockbuster hit. I'm going to say 77. Try 29. It was a critical flop. The consensus, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is dull and disappointing. The best that can be said for the Amityville Horror is that it set a low bar for its many sequels and remakes. Critically, this movie... People hated it. It's Metacritic rating, 28%. What would you give it? Considering, like we said, some of the acting's really good, some of the filmmaking is really good, but there are very odd choices as to what stays in the movie and what doesn't. It is two hours long, which is almost two hours too long, and nothing happens. I think I'd give it a 69. <sighs> I'd probably give it like a 63. It's good quality filmmaking at certain points mm -hmm. and good acting at points. Mm -hmm. Margot Kidder can be really endearing. Mm -hmm. And Brolin is awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, just because I don't think a movie's fun to watch or interesting, that doesn't yeah. mean it's not a good movie. That's how I feel about this one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but still. Like, it didn't work for me, but I think it's well made, and I think it's great acting, like you said. There are some bad choices yeah, but that taint this movie, like, really. <sighs> it's too long. Yeah. Um, There was actually something I wanted to bring up, and uh -huh. I, I was toying with whether or not to bring it up for the second movie, but I think it applies here more okay. for the second, more for the remake. Yeah, I have another thing similarly, but I'm going to hold off on it. I feel like Stephen King, I think he stole some of the ideas here for The Shining. For The Shining? Mm-hmm. It's really apparent when you see the remake, which you could argue, oh, so the remake is the one stealing. No, because elements of the story 
are in The Shining. It's just that the the remake made it more obvious with their with their visual choices. Right, but the book so these events happened in 75. The book didn't come out until later. The movie came out in 1979. The Shining movie came out in 1980. I looked it up. The book was the Amityville horror book was written before The Shining. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. But I'll talk about that more when we talk about the remake. I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that, actually. I hadn't even – I mean, I thought there were some similarities here. But I also thought this pulls a lot from The Exorcist, too, in certain ways. It's so funny. I didn't think that. Like, I see where you're coming from. Like, the from. priest, the blessing, the cold. Like, they're basically trying to exorcise the place. Right. I mean, this like, is before you- exorcism movies were huge. Right. And, I mean – like I said, there's elements here from Rosemary's Baby. There's elements, yes. like you say, from The Exorcist. There's elements from other movies, too. But, I mean, there's only so much Satanist lore. And let's right. be frank, Rosemary's Baby made a lot of it up. Yeah. So a lot of what we understand about Satanism comes from that. And it's like, what else are you going to draw from? Yeah, okay. Good. All right, that is 1979's Amityville Horror. Before we move on to its remake, Slash Cards, Kelsey, your last Slash Card question. Okay. So this one's hard. Oh, maybe it's not. Maybe you'll know. What makeup effects artists' credits include 1978's Dawn of the Dead, 1980s Friday the 13th, 1980s Maniac, and 1982's Creepshow. Do you know his name? I know who he is. I can even picture him. (laughs) He is, he's one of the bikers in Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. He has a beard. Why can't I think of his name? What's his name? Tom Savini. Thank you. I feel like just a big idiot not knowing that. I really like Tom Savini, even though he's a weird creepo. (laughs) He does some really great work, and he's a lot of fun. So I'm bummed that I couldn't remember his name. That's one of my biggest problems is name recall. My entire life, I've recalled the most obscure and abstract events but I could run into a cousin and forget their name. <laughs> it's just the way it works. <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Uh-huh. This is the last slash card question. A mad scientist kidnaps three tourists and sews them together to conduct a ghastly experiment in this 2009 film. The human centipede. <laughs> All right, I asked that just to antagonize Kelsey a little bit. I hate that movie. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. You've never seen it. Nope. I've never finished it. I've never cared to see it. After the first sequence of it, I was just like, no. Especially I since this. I don't care how crazy you are, I don't believe any actual scientist would think that that would work. Do you know where the idea came from? Where? The writer and his friends were talking about, um, they had just heard on the radio or on TV or something about Mm. um, a child molester. 
And they said the punishment for child molester is they should be sewn to the butt of a truck driver. Yeah. And so that's where that idea But you see what I'm saying? Like, it's just some dudes made it up while they were probably high. (laughs) And they expect us to believe that a scientist would come up with this. (laughs) No, it's dumb. It's very, very dumb. But it's supposed to be dumb. I will give it that. I am not defending this movie. Don't look at me like I am. (laughs) I'm not saying you are. I hate it more than most people do. Yeah. All right. That was fun. (laughs) All right. This is a double feature. The late night double feature. So we're moving on to the remake of the Amityville Horror from 2005, directed by Andrew Douglas. Written by Scott Kosar, based on the novel by Jay Anson. Also being based on an earlier screenplay from Sander Stern and based on material by George and Kathy Lutz. It has that many credits. Uh, They get a material credit because I think there's arguments to say that they just made this stuff up. And starring. But I'm pretty sure that. That George Lutz sued them. He did. And uh, we can get (laughs) a little bit. Yes. So they were making this movie and he was like, what the hell? Nobody even called me to talk to me about it. So he got his attorney to talk to the studio to find out what was going on and let them know that according to Lutz, they didn't actually have the rights to proceed without getting his input. They sent a bunch of letters. The studio never acknowledged them. Um. They filed a motion for declaratory relief in federal court, basically to get the court to say preemptively, shut the fuck up and stop bothering them. They have the rights. Lutz countersued. He said that the original contract was violated and had continued to be violated uh, since the very first film. The case was never resolved and he died in 2006. So, but they do get credit in the movie. Starring (laughs) Ryan Reynolds, Melissa George, Philip Baker Hall, and featuring the first film appearance of Chloe Grace Moretz. Kelsey. Yeah. What's 2005's Amityville Horror about? The exact same thing. I I think that this one around, we're just going to talk about the differences because it's the exact same story. I literally started to write down the differences. And as the movie goes on, there are a ton. There are. There but they're, are, they're subtle event differences. The general thrust of the movie is exactly the same. Yes, it's the same exact story. They just updated it. Right. Updated by Platinum Dunes. My response when I saw the Platinum Dunes logo was, wait a minute, isn't that Michael Bay? <laughs> yes, it is. Platinum Dunes, the production company that remade Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, also remade Amityville Horror. They, however, are also the ones that did The Purge, Ouija, and A Quiet Place. Ouija sucks. The sequel to Ouija is dope. Right. And of all of those, I would say the only one that is just abysmal is is um, Freddy. Nightmare on Elm Street. You never saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Yes, I did. You did? When? In high school. Really? Petrified me. Did that come out that long ago? Yeah. 
I was a junior, and I know because I remember the kids I was there seeing it with, including my boyfriend at the time, and I- I hate him. Where is he? Was petrified. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I was- I couldn't sleep that night. This is also why she refuses to watch the original. Yep. Uh, This is not a- Unreasonable fear like she has with Child's Play or the Gremlins or Leprechaun, which is small, scary things coming to kill you. This is a man with a chainsaw and his cannibal family. So I guess I understand that. Anyway. It's so funny. Have you seen it? The remake? Yes. No. Because I don't remember a family at the end. Maybe I was just so scared that I just stopped watching. I assume, because that's a big part of the original. There would kind of have to be. I don't remember them. That's the weird thing. Is there a cop in the movie? Yes, the cop is evil. Yeah, because he's part of the family. Yeah, I don't remember a family sequence. But like I said, it might be that I, at that point, wasn't watching because I just couldn't handle it. Looks I like was... we're just going to have to watch it again and no. talk about it on the show. <laughs> it's torture porn. We're not watching torture porn on this. See, that's the thing about the original is the original's not really torture porn. It's more about what's threatened and less about what happens. That's the fear. It's like you don't see a lot in that movie. It's just a lot is suggested, and that's what scared people. Anyway, we're talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just because Amityville Horror is so boring. (laughs) Should people watch this movie? For Ryan Reynolds' body, you should. Holy God. (laughs) He is chiseled out of marble. Oh, he's a sexy man. Holy fuck. What's her name is a very lucky lady. Blake Lively. Blake Lively, yeah. Like, Jesus He's hilarious and he's gorgeous. She is a lucky lady. Yeah, Jesus. (laughs) And he's very charming in this, except not nearly as good as James Brolin and his character development shit on him. And we will talk about that. I will say, however, that this movie does a lot better job of ramping up the things that happen. It's not nearly as bad as I remember it to be. It's paced a lot better than the yes. first one. Yes. I will say. But it makes a lot of other errors that really kind of make it on par with the original. <laughs> Just think of the original and then think of Platinum Dunes remaking it and that's what you have. That's exactly what you expect it to be. Use that to determine whether or not you should watch it. And when we get back, we'll talk about 2005's The Amityville Horror. What would happen to this family? What's the matter? Just seeing things like this. Has never been explained. Based on the true story. Get you and your family out of that house. Right now. The Amityville Horror. Rated R. Start Friday, April 15th. Kelsey. Yes. What's different about the 2005 version of the Amityville Horror? Get us started here. Well, quite a few things. First of all, the scares in this movie are much more akin to something like House on Haunted Hill. There's a lot more of the flashy, scary images going on here. They're a lot more subdued than they were in House on Haunted Hill, but you know what I mean. And it's it's filmed in a more dark and grainy tone, I would say. It's it's very it's very jump scary. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. 
So actual story-wise, they changed it so that the littlest sister, the guy who killed his family, her name is Jody, instead of making it a pig face demon. Yeah. And so that when the little when the sister when the little girl of the Lutzes meets her, we can actually see her interact with this character called right. Jody. And they changed it. And they made it so that the sister woke up and was killed inside her closet, which I don't know why they would do that, because the creepiest part about the true story of what happened in that family is that no one woke up. So why would you change that? So he can say he loves her. I guess. In this version, the the oldest kid of the Lutzes does not like George. Well, I'd say in general, there's a lot larger focus on developing the kids' as characters. Yeah. All of them, Billy and Chelsea, probably the most, not as much for Michael, the middle kid. And we've seen all three of these kids in other movies. Chloe Moritz, Grace, or Chloe Grace Moritz, whatever. We know her. She's very famous now. Um, she was in Carrie. She was in Let, Let Me In. She was in... She's been in, uh, what was that superhero movie? Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass, etc. The middle kid that Chris just said, Michael, the one that we we get the least out of, he's the brother in Orphan, and he's James Tiberius Kirk as a kid in Star Trek. Yep. And I'm sure a couple of other things. And then the oldest kid, Billy, what I know him most from is uh, the butterfly effect. He plays Tommy at age 13, so we see him a, a couple of times in that movie. Uh, his name is Jesse James. He's also in As Good As It Gets. So, Billy automatically does not like his stepfather. We get a little bit more background into this family. We find out that the father of these three kids uh, died that's why she has remarried, and because of that, Billy doesn't like him. Michael is trying to like him, and Chelsea, I think, is pretty much indifferent. Yeah. In this version, they don't find out about the dead family, the DeFeos, until after the realtor has shown them the house and they fall in love with it, whereas in the original, they knew about it going in. Right. Um, but again, the realtor is also afraid of the house. She refuses to go down into the basement when they're walking through it. Mm-hmm. Then we get a, when they move in, we get a stupid happy family montage, which makes no sense because we just saw that Billy doesn't like George, but then in this in this little montage, he's happy and smiling for the camera. Right. I, I feel like most of that comes out after the haunting, because in general- Ryan Reynolds starts seeing things, like, really early on in this version. And we get to see them, too. And he starts changing really early on. I'd say that they did that in both movies. I think that this movie is just better paced, and so it felt faster. But if you look at the timeline, I'm pretty sure that they see things right away, both movies. It's just that the other movie is much more slower paced. No, but my point is, is that... Almost immediately after moving in, he starts seeing things that we also see. We don't get that in the original. True. So it has a bigger impact. Also, Ryan Reynolds goes from zero to fuckhead in like three seconds. There is no ramp up for him. He's either the worst husband and father in the fucking world or he's completely unaffected. There is no middle ground. 
He like hardly ever, ever apologizes for his behavior. Unlike Brolin, this is one of my biggest problems with the difference in this movie is that George is an unrepentant dickhead the entire fucking movie. And in Brolin's portrayal of him, you can kind of empathize with him a little bit. Like, obviously, you don't know what's happening to cause him to feel this way, but he seems like a real human being who is shocked at the way he's behaving and feels guilt over it and doesn't know why he's upset all the time. And it gets worse and worse and it ramps up until he's yelling and shouting and then he hits her. And then, but no, Ryan Reynolds, it's zero to fuckhead. And almost at no time in this movie are you ever sympathetic for him. And that's my problem. That's probably my biggest problem with it. Do you disagree? I disagree. I think that there are several times when he feels guilty over what he's done. Maybe he's not as blatant about his guilt when as are, he is in the original, but I think, again, that's because of the pacing. They wanted to keep this movie going. When are those times? Well, I'd have to... I'm not asking you to... I'm, I'm, I have a suggestion when I think those times are. Those times are when he leaves the house. No. Those are the only times, literally the only times, where he's not a total fuckhead. The very first one that pops into my mind is when he yells at Michael for going down into the basement. He goes, no, not the basement, my my office. You don't ever go down there, yeah. you understand? And then almost immediately he's like, what the fuck am I doing? And he gives him a hug and he's like, I'm sorry, bud. And whatever. That is 10 minutes into the movie. <sighs> yes, it's the first one that comes into mind. Right, I know. My point is, is that he apologizes that time. That's the only, like, that's literally the only time I can think of. I'm aware of the time you're talking about where Michael comes out. Hey, look at this thing that we found. And he's like, where'd you find that? In the basement. And he, like, rips into him for a second. Then he's like, well, that was weird. I don't, huh. And, like, he says he's sorry and he gives him a hug. Like, that's the only time. And then for the rest of the movie, fuckhead. Except for when, and this is a better part of this movie, they leave. They leave two times. They go get dinner and they leave the kids, all the kids with a babysitter, not just like the wedding where they leave only Amy slash Chelsea. They leave all the kids and they go get dinner. And when they go to the hospital, those are like the only times they leave the house. And both times he feels better instantly. And we don't get that in the other movie, but it also kind of weakens the story because it supports the fact that. Dude, the way you're the the reason you're feeling that way is because of the house. Both times he's like, "Huh, isn't it weird that I feel great today? I have left the house and now I feel great. When I was at the house, I feel like shit and I'm angry and I'm an asshole. As soon as I leave the property, I just feel a million times better." And that happens twice, and he says this shit like out loud, and at no point is anybody like, "Hey, maybe we should not be at that house." I agree. I agree about that. I felt the same way. I was like, come on. No one notices that he's a completely different person when he's not at the house. Like, completely different person. Yeah. But immediately he feels cold, just like in the original. Uh, he hears voices much faster. The, the voices are coming from the basement. We have the same mirrors. Did you catch that? Yes, I did. Yeah. The same mirrors. Jody. we get a couple of flashy images of her. One of her, like, hanging from the ceiling. While they're having sex, and he's just like, oh, what the fuck? And yeah. Then, uh -huh. Nothing. 
There's a balloon. There's a red balloon that it starts out as a motif. Chelsea's holding the balloon for no reason. Where did she get that balloon? Never explained. And then it appears one night at 3.15 in the middle of the night. And then just never again. They just forgot they were using that as a motif. They actually show the kids getting scared a couple of times. Yeah. Michael gets scared when he goes pee in the middle of the night. That's kind of an adorable scene. Oh, God. And that totally rings true with me. I remember being a kid and having Uh to run in the night and being terrifying. And this is the one time that watching this movie made me jump. I wasn't wasn't expecting it. And and who was that? One of the people that was kept in a pen. I guess maybe because it is so unclear, though. Like, they do not keep track of their haunts very well at all. It's just, let's see a random person. It is, Jody is tormented, tormented throughout this movie. We see her pinned up on the roof one time with arms holding her, and we don't know whose arms they are. At the end of the movie, she's pulled into the floor, and we don't know who did that. Who do you think did it? The Native Americans. I guess. That's the other thing is the the reason this place is haunted is because originally it was a place where a guy kept a bunch of uh, indigenous people locked up in the basement and tortured and killed them. Like, okay, they don't explain why or what was that? And then he just decided one day that he was going to slit his own throat so his spirit could remain there. What? It's not like there was some tragedy where he was consumed in a fire, too, or whatever. Just some guy who tortured some Indians just decided he was going to be a ghost and haunt the place. What? (laughs) What? Yeah, I don't know. So dumb. It's really dumb. And we just see these, these characters occasionally, and they don't do a good job of, like, registering who this is supposed to be and why I'm supposed to be scared of them, why they look the way that they do, why are they tormenting Jody? Like, is it – it's not the older brother. The older brother loved her, it's, and he's not dead. <laughs> and it's not – it like, okay, is it the dad of the family that we see at that one scene when they're on the roof and trying to get in and an old man is in the window and scares them and they all see it together? which is one of the only times that happens. Is is that the dad or is that the doctor who tortured the Indian people? I don't know. It's not clear. Like, it's throughout the entire movie, it's like that. I agree. I totally agree. There's a slight difference in the babysitter. So the babysitter this time, instead of being a dork, a, a nerdy jerk, this one is a hot bitch. <laughs> yeah, a hot bitch is right. She also gets high in the bathroom with the full-size bomb that, that she, she brought over. she carries around in her purse. <laughs> like, is that just supposed to be, like, a visual marker so we know that she's getting high and not just smoking? Because why was that necessary? Why wouldn't she have a pipe? Why wouldn't she have a joint? Like, what... If you don't know what a bong is, it requires water. It requires <laughs> yeah. water, and this girl is holding it in her purse. So like, yeah, well, she maybe she filled it up because she's in the bathroom, but as soon as they reeks. talk to her, as soon as they, they like knock on the door to ask what she's doing, she grabs it and she puts it directly in her bag. Full of water? <laughs> exactly. So dumb. And she's a total bitch, and she's obviously teasing Billy, who is totally into her, and they talk about Kiss... They dare her to go into the closet where Jody was killed, and she does, 
and the door slams shut. The boys try to get her out, but Chelsea does nothing. We see Jody in there. She has the bullet hole in her head. She grabs the babysitter's finger, sticks it in the hole, and then acts like it's a gun and like gets shot by it, I guess. And this drives the babysitter insane. <laughs> Apparently, we're supposed to be okay with this because the babysitter was a bad babysitter to Jody. And that's why Jody hates her and is willing to torment her. And that's why Chelsea sits back and lets her. And we never see the babysitter again and never comes up again. Yeah. George becomes really harsh with his discipline and, like, scares the kids more and puts them in dangerous positions. And the wife, for some reason, doesn't do anything to stop this. This is where I wrote, Reynolds basically becomes unrepentantly bad at this point. He doesn't have outbursts. He's just bad. And he still hallucinates, I wrote. But, like, it's... He does. He's not like a normal person who, impressed, seems annoyed and gets way too angry at it. He's just like, yeah, your husband's fucking dead and you should feel bad about it. When the body suffers, the spirit flowers. That's what my dad taught me. His dad's not around to teach him that now, is he? Like, that's his attitude throughout this whole movie now. Instead of, shut the fuck up! Like, and just like outbursts you know what i mean he's just like trying to be evil and he's trying to be like oh you kids your dad died because he hates you like you know like that's okay, he doesn't kind of, actually say that i know but. right right <laughs> but that's what i'm talking about like, that's the sense that he gets he just becomes evil yeah and well, he it's, actively think, tries to annoy people versus i think it's supposed to be that the the character they created the ketchum killer yeah I think he's, like, kind of possessing Ryan Reynolds at this point. Right. right. That's what I got out of it. But it makes Ryan Reynolds a lot less sympathetic when we don't get to see him. We got to see him be a good dad in the very beginning and then, like, never again. And I think it's right around this time that I started to really pick up on a lot of the Shining elements. Yeah. Um. Here is where, like I said, it's like the, the, the house is pushing him to kill his family, just like in The Shining. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of visual effects. I mean, visuals that really bring it up, too. When he gets into the bath, that's when I wrote, God damn, Ryan. I know. Jesus. Because <laughs> damn, is that boy ripped? Yeah. Um, anyway, he gets in there, and they, they like, try to pull him under in the bath. And I don't know why, but that really... The idea that the house wants to use him, but at the same time they're trying to kill him. Yeah. Kind of felt, again, like The Shining. They want to use him, but they also want to kill him. Right. This is when he goes to the doctor. And when they get back, Chelsea is up on top of the house, which looks very real. Yeah. It's it got to really be does. fake, but it looks super real. So Reynolds gets a ladder. The mom goes through the house through her window the same way Chelsea did and gets up on there and she walks out to the edge and is like, mom, um, I got to jump. Jody says, cause I gotta, whatever. doesn't matter. And she jumps and the mom grabs her and is holding on at the top of this. And then she like rolls down the side of the roof and, uh, is about to drop Jody. But as she does, Ryan Reynolds grabs, I say Jody, Chelsea, grabs Chelsea and pulls her in 
from the balcony or whatever. Which, again, right here is another example of him being really worried and concerned about the kids. Immediately immediately. he snaps back. Immediately. But when he grabs her, he's really worried about her. Yeah. It's not good enough. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't, like, only in moments where somebody is going to literally die is he allowed to be sympathetic. Like, come on. Because what happens immediately next is that Chelsea tells her mom, Jody said that my dad's here, and if I go with her, then I get to play with daddy forever. I've seen her. She was going to show me daddy. I just want to see daddy. Jody promised to take me to daddy. She says I can stay here so we can play together forever and ever. And the mom's like, oh, my God, you miss your dad so much. This obviously has a big effect on you. I'm so sorry, sweetie. Like, and then Ryan Reynolds is like, this fucking family is so crazy nuts. What's the matter with you people? Wacko family. Right. Like, immediately unsympathetic again. Yes. In a moment where everyone's calmed down. And there's no reason for him to be aggressive like that. What's the matter with you people? Wacko family. So he goes to sleep in the basement because he's had it. And then he's watching the video that we saw earlier, uh-huh. the montage video. And he's like, oh, I miss them and love them, but I'm so sick. And then Billy's face turns into a demon face. And this is kind of where the idea comes in that, oh, the DeFeos were killed because the house told him that his family was demons. Right. He he tries to run the film back to see the face again. Like, was I just hallucinating? And no, it's there. It's on the film. But then the film catches fire. He kills the dog? He kills, this this is where he kills the dog. But, but... There's barking later on, mm-hmm. which drives him crazy because he's like, what? And he doesn't understand it. But that's never explained. And we never see the dog again. Yeah, he kills the dog. He, I guess, drops it into the lake and cleans up after him. This is when the wife goes to see the priest for the first time. And she asks him to come to the house. And this time... His holy water burns when it get when it hits the floor or it boils or whatever. Kind of neat, but a little obvious. Yeah. Flies come in, the door slams, the cross comes upside down, he's told to get out. And Flies come in in a huge swarm. Yes. Like, it's super dramatic. And we get some shock torture flashes. Yeah. And he just runs out the house. Yeah, he gets in his car. Kathy runs after him and bangs on the door. He's like, what happened? What happened? And he just looks at her and drives away. Like, you couldn't just say, get out of the house right, and then drive nothing. away? No, no, he's just, what the fuck? <laughs> so she goes to see him again. And he's like, your house scares me. And she's like, she she tells him all the research about Ketchum. And he's just like, you need to get out of that house. And it's like, what? You couldn't have said that yesterday? <laughs> yeah. Right. I wondered the very same thing. I felt like it immediately made me think of the wedding singer. Again, something that could have brought been brought to my attention yesterday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. For some reason, when she gets back, Ryan Reynolds is in the boathouse. And for some reason, when he flashes the light at her, it makes her slip. <laughs> 
into the water. Oh, but you missed the you missed the research scene. I just want to say very briefly when she's doing research in the newspapers with the microfiche, and she's reading about the horrors and everything that happened down there. Reynolds is walking through the passage. He breaks down the wall. Oh, that's right. And he's walking through the passage, and he actually goes into the passage, unlike uh, James Brolin, and. He, as he's walking down, every door he passes is an inmate ghost trying to get at him. And oh, I'm scared and I'm scared. Right. Exactly. As like Kathy is like reading about these moments. That's probably the torture flashes I was talking about. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. And it's a little bit ridiculous. This is when she finds out that the dude slit his own throat. So his spirit would remain there. Mm-hmm. This is when the boathouse scene happens. And her hair gets caught in the motor, and he immediately stops it. Yeah. But then when he looks at her, he sees a demon face, and so he starts to do it again. I don't know what makes him stop it the second time. He runs it in reverse. So her hair gets untangled. Oh, well, she says... Yeah. Yeah, she she does, and it made no sense to me. It made no sense to me. I didn't understand it. She gets upset for trying to kill her. When all he did was shine a light in her, the motor was already running, and yeah, he delayed it a little bit where he turned the motor off before he put it in reverse, and she was, like, drowning, but, like, he's the one who saved her. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. Why was the motor running in the first place? He's in a closed boathouse. What the fuck? Why, when he turns around and shines the light, does that cause her to fall? (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with her? What's the matter with you people? When she goes back inside and gets all her kids, they come across coffins that he somehow had time to make without anybody noticing. And wrote their names on them. (laughs) That was, I was just like, seriously, movie, you needed to label them? I could have figured it out on my own. Right? Yeah. So bad. Because Michael's down there, and she's trying to get Michael, and she goes after him. Yeah. And then when he does, like, the slow lumbering with the axe, again, the shining, it's taken straight out of the shining. There is a shot of him getting her right in the gut, which is just like... He gets him in the chest. In the shining, he gets him in the chest. He gets her in the gut. I mean, it's the same idea, but... It's like right in the middle of their torso, is what I'd say. <laughs> I, I wrote, we see him bury the axe in her stomach, a la The Shining, but that's just in his head. It doesn't actually happen. Uh, they go out onto the roof. Which through... they can suddenly climb no problem in the rain. In the rain. Meanwhile, when they were doing it before, they were all slipping and sliding and almost dying. But in the rain, they can totally do it. I just thought, I mean, the slipping and sliding part was like, yeah, because the daughter jumped off and she had to reach out and grab her and wasn't positioned well I, I didn't have a problem with that i actually thought it was clever that they went back to that that she used the experience that happened earlier in the movie to save her this time i thought that was a little a little clever uh, but you're right it's kind of ridiculous that the whole family's up on this roof billy ends up hitting him with a pipe and he and reynolds falls off the house Completely. Suddenly she has a gun. The mom has a gun. Yeah. Came out of she nowhere. She gets the shotgun out of nowhere and threatens him with it. And then cries out into the rain because she can't do it. Right. So she just hits him. Which could still kill him. Right. <laughs> this is when we see the axe in the stomach and it turns out it didn't actually happen. And he says to her, 
because he re- he sees that he's like, you need to kill me or I'll kill you. And she says that no one's going to kill anyone, and she hits him again. Nothing. Kill me. You'll kill me or I'll kill you. Nobody's dying today. Again, very The Shining. Um, when when he comes out of it at the end of the book, he's just like, you need to kill me. The whole family together, and when I say whole family, I mean Kathy and the three kids, drag him, tied up, to the boathouse, and they take a speedboat out into the middle of the lake. Why they didn't just get in a car, I don't know. <laughs> they decide we need to get away from this house and this property. Let's go out on a lake. <laughs> And they barely go a little bit. She stops and looks at him and he's like, just don't even look at it. Yeah. Don't uh-huh. look at the house. Let's get out of here. And he's just immediately, because that happened two times already. Yeah, 20 feet away from the house and he's a completely different person. Okay. Yeah. So then, I mean, I guess being out on the ocean is more dramatic than just being in a car driving in a, driving away. I don't know. So we cut back to Jody in the house. She's just standing there. She screams and all the furniture goes back into its appropriate place. Screws come out of the windows. The time turns back to 3:15 for some reason this happens. We don't know why. And then she cries a single tear and the hands pull her through the floor and leaving her stuffed bear. That's the other thing. The priest is like that bear belonged to Jody DeFeo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, couldn't it just be a, a you know, could, couldn't it just been left here? And she's like, and he's like, no, I presided over their funeral. She was buried with that bear. I knew the DeFeos very well. I presided over their funeral. Jody DeFeo was buried with that dog. No explanation for how that bear got back, and nobody's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like that's ridiculous. A no business partner and his wife. There is no hell passage. It's just a place where bad things happened in the past. Like I said, a much larger focus on the kids and developing them as characters, which is good. Reynolds gets obsessed with the furnace and not just the fireplace, which makes a lot more sense because it's down in the basement. It forces him to spend time there. And it's the thing that heats the whole house. So when he complains about the whole house being cold, he talks about the one place that it's warm. It's the furnace. Like, of course. Um, any other differences you want to talk about? Just that Ryan Reynolds never loses his physical charm, whereas I feel like Brolin, they did a lot to make him look crazy. Yes. Whereas Ryan Reynolds just looks hot throughout the whole movie. He does. He, does. So. he still has his, it, almost his Blade Trinity beard. He does, He never looks good in that beard. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't mind it on him. I think he's just a gorgeous human being, so... These these were my final thoughts I wrote down on the movie. So, I mean, I guess it can wait until we can talk about our rating. But what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? This I know. This was like a 26. It was a 24. 24. Okay. The consensus being a so-so remake of a so-so original. Metacritic, it got a 33. Cinema score, it got a B. Again, I kind of feel the same way about it as I feel for the first one. It's not a horrible movie. It's 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 fine. It's a fine movie. It's fine. It's well put together. And I mean, well, it it has some issues, but I mean, every movie does. But it just it's just like whatever. Right. It's a movie. It, it seems like all the ways it fixes the original, it does just as much to make it worse. Yeah. It's kind of weird. So I wrote, this version is a little too quickly paced, ironically. 
it's already 30 minutes shorter. It, but it's more interesting. The danger ramps up. It builds more naturally. It feels tangible, actually dangerous, as opposed to the original where, like, oh, I saw a face. Ah. <laughs> but since it's not as subtle, it seems a little too nuts, a little too over the top, a little too unbelievable. Uh, Reynolds is never relatable and is simply a villain for most of the movie. Uh, and it does so that doesn't build up nicely at all in contrast to the original where it drags on for far too long. It is so poorly paced, but Brolin's version ramps up really nicely, I feel. Him going crazy, and he just gets worse and worse and worse, whereas Reynolds goes relatable and nice in the very beginning, and then evil asshole, and that's it. Why was the dead dude tormenting Jody? Was it the Indian torturer guy, and why? Why did he even care about Jody? It can't be the DeFeo killer. He was taken away. Like... (laughs) It doesn't make any sense, and that really bothered me. It was just – there's a lot where it's just like, oh, we did this for effect with no thought on how it would actually relate to the story. And that's the ways it makes it worse. That said, what would you give it, Kels? Probably a 70. So a higher rating than the original. Well, it's got Ryan Reynolds' body in it. Yeah, but James Brolin's a lumberjack. James Brolin is hot in that movie, but you don't get to see his chest, and I doubt his chest looked like that. You kind of do, and it does not. (laughs) (laughs) This is hard for me. I feel like it's not better than the original. I mean, in ways it is, but in other ways it's worse, you know? So I feel like I kind of can't give it a higher or a lower rating than the original. I think I'm just going to give it a 63 like I gave the original. They are, I think you are right when you say that, like, the things it does better are marred by the things it does worse. Yeah. And it's the same for the first one. It's just got that little bit of edge on it. Which is Ryan Reynolds' amazing torso. (laughs) He's not exactly a bad looking dude. No. (laughs) All right. That is Amityville Horror from 2005. Now, before we actually close out the episode, we're going to talk about the season finale of Castle Rock. So stick around for that. But uh, first, some house cleaning. Kelsey, what are we going to watch next week? Next week is another week of recommendations. This time, the recommendations come from a man named Will. And he writes in asking us to watch Wishmaster and Wish Upon. So some Wish movies. We already know if you listen to our Christine episode that Bob was on, you already know Wish Upon is kind of a piece of garbage. Every We've never seen it, but every single person we know that's seen it says it's awful. So excited for that. Uh-huh. And I've actually never seen Wishmaster. I just know, like, his face on the cover of the VHS from when I was younger. Funny enough, earlier in this episode, we talked about Under the Shadow. Oh, right, yeah. Which is about an evil gym. Wishmaster's about an evil gym. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. All right, until then, you can reach us at podcemetery.com where you can browse all of our episodes and a list of every movie we've ever had on the show. You can leave a comment to share your thoughts on the movies or recommend one or two for us to cover in the future. 
just like Will did with our next episode. Or this episode, which was recommended by Chloe. Thank you, Chloe. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. I'll sometimes add comments that we think of after the mics are turned off, and Kelsey will sometimes live tweet a random horror movie, but since she's back at work, it's kind of tough. I mean, I didn't do it much this summer. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was planning a wedding. (laughs) Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. That really does help us out quite a bit. More than that, sharing us with your friends, that helps us out even more. And more importantly than that, we thank you for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Now, before we close out the show, Kelsey, what did you think of the season finale of Castle Rock? Not happy about it. No. Not happy about it. I'm not happy about the way it ended. I mean, we knew where it was going. Right? Like, We thought the, we knew. Well, the big reveal happened in the last episode, right? Yeah. So we kind of knew that that. Like, it wasn't going to go anywhere from that. It was going to be more about how people reacted. Um, This movie, this episode's called Romans, by the way. I guess the big surprise is that through it all, Henry Deaver would not budge. And he refused to take white Henry Deaver out to the woods. Black Henry Deaver basically says to white Henry Deaver, look. Maybe your story's true, but every time you go out into the forest, somebody dies. Right. And so because of that, I'm just not going to bother finding out for myself, and I'm going to put you right back where I fucking found you. Yep. And just say, fuck you. I've got my life. Screw your life. Yep. And I'm not okay with that. I, I'm, no, 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 I'm no. livid. I agree. Black Henry Deaver is a bad person at the end of this episode. I don't think we're supposed to think he'd made the right choice. It's supposed to be a tragedy. But so is Romeo and Juliet. So is Othello. And people love those plays. Just because it ends in tragedy doesn't mean it can't be good. Okay. The two examples you just gave? I just gave the first two tragedies that came into my head. Romeo and Juliet, that ending serves a purpose. I hate Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) It serves a purpose. It teaches a lesson. Mm Mm-hmm. The end of Othello is awesome because Iago is awesome. <laughs> this teaches us nothing. And you end up disliking a character that you've liked this entire series. Yeah. Okay. So to put it in perspective for you, I don't know if you know this, but IMDb rates every episode of a TV show. Okay. Romans episode 10 is the lowest rated episode of the entire season by a full point. Fucking good. I hope that the filmmakers realize that they made a shitty decision. It just made me feel like not good. Like, it didn't make me feel awful in like a, oh, that was so profound kind of way. I think you're right. It just made me feel like, well, that fucking sucks. Yeah. And that's it. It's just like, oh, how can we write this to where it ends in a spooky way? Oh, what if Black Henry Deaver doesn't take him to the woods and keeps him locked up, presumably for another 27 years? Like, ugh. The ending kind of reminded me of the ending from The Fog, which I've never read. I think that ending works, though, because it sets up a, like, you don't know, uh, spoilers for the ending of The Fog, but everyone should know the ending of The Fog because it's so fucking famous, where the dad kills his family 
because the fog's going to encroach upon them and doesn't have enough bullets to kill himself. And when he gets out of the car to, you know, be consumed by the, the, the beings in the fog, the army comes rolling through and the fog dissipates. He was right before they got saved. And you have to ask the question, is that because he killed his family? And yes. you don't know. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's an interesting ending. Yeah. This show is not an interesting ending. Right. Right? I think they thought that they were being interesting, or they were, like you said, being, oh, no, flipped it on head. Got you. That's not what I'm watching this show for. What I wanted was a little bit more info on Sissy Spacek's character, because she has a great scene where she's on the bridge again, and she's going to jump off again. And, and then she's just dead again. I mean, again, she's just dead. Don't know how, don't know why. She's just dead. He goes and puts flowers on her grave, and we don't know what the fuck happened to oh, her. Oh, because it's like a year later. Yeah, but that's not that's not my point. My, my point is about the scene, where she's on the bridge, and then our girl shows up, and they have a conversation, and Sissy Spacek has this really interesting conversation about, like, you know, you say that every time. Like, she is in this time loop, where she just keeps living it over and over again, because... She allows herself to go back in time, and I guess this time, at the end of The Queen, she didn't. I guess that's the lesson we were supposed to get, or whatever. I don't know. I honestly don't know, because I wanted more information about that, because that was really intriguing. And then, because our girl talked to White Henry Deaver, and he told her the whole story, she tells Sissy Spacek something that, and Sissy Spacek's like, oh, you've never said that before. I'm like, I want more about that. Tell me more about that. I wanted more about what was going on in the woods. I was looking forward to them going back into the woods because I was looking forward to seeing those characters again. Yeah, but we don't go. What the fuck it's is supposed going on to there. be a subversion, and it's supposed to make you go "whoa," but it's it doesn't. It just makes me go "oh." Yeah, it makes me mad. It is. I it did. is probably the worst episode of the season. I would say. Yeah. However, I did like the second ending. The second ending with Jackie Torrance. She's writing what appears to be a book in the bar and called the, Overlooked. Yeah, the book is called Overlooked and the guy shows uh the waiter dude that we've seen before shows up and is like overlooked. What's that supposed to mean? And she's like it's a double entendre. Like it <laughs> <laughs> it has a double meaning. I um, think we just love that actress and yeah, I think everything she does is going to make us happy. And we love the shining. So like those two things together and I don't remember what the conclusion of that was. Was it that she decided she was going to go visit the hotel? Something like that. Yeah. Going where, back so to where the it story all could end where it began or whatever. Yeah. Which scares me because I'm like, oh no, you're not going to do that for your next season, are you? Maybe. What else can they possibly do? Especially when all we have is Jackie Torrance. We don't have a whole family like we did in The Shining. And we'd want a more ensemble cast like we did in this, this season. Well,. According to, I mean, if they don't want to make it canon, but according to, what was the sequel called? Dr. Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. It's burned down. Right. So either this happens before that, and I don't remember from the book, I don't remember if it was burned down a long time. No, it was, because that's what happens at the end of That's what happens at the end of The the Shining. Shining. You're right, you're right. So I don't know what the fuck she's going to do, unless she's going to go join those Dr. Sleep people. But yeah. I don't think she has a power. And they only take people with powers. She has an intuition. Yeah, she has kind of an intuition. But she, but of. she's not the character with The Shining. Right. The character with The Shining was our girl. I right. know I keep calling her that, but that's because I don't remember her name. <laughs> what is her name? I need to know. Molly is the name of the character, played by Melanie Linsky. 
Melanie Linsky, you were great, and we loved you in this. You end the season in the Florida Keys as a realtor oh, that's right. with your grandma. Because Henry Deaver tells her to drive away and just never come back to the city. Uh, you know, take my boy, take him to his mom, and then just keep going. Get as far away as you can and never come back. And she does. I like Molly. Yeah, I mean, good for her that she's living in the Keys. And apparently she's doing a successful job as a realtor for in, old, the, in the Keys. For elderly for old, people yeah, uh-huh. on retirement. I don't know. I'm not happy with the way it ended. I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bummed. I'm really curious to see what happens. But that's not to say overall that the show wasn't good. I really liked the show. It wasn't like revelatory or anything. It had one of the best episodes of the year of any show, which was really good. I actually really liked the penultimate episode too, the Henry Deaver episode. I know you didn't like that as much, but I did. There is some quality here. I just I just don't know why they chose to end it the way they did. I guess because you have two choices, right? Like after Henry Deaver, the episode, episode nine, you have two choices to end the, the, the show, which is the predictable way or the semi-predictable way. And they went with the semi-predictable way. I think a lot of this show was trying to be unpredictable. I think a lot of this show was, what if we did this next episode that completely changes everything that has happened so far? Yeah. And I think that they thought they were being clever that way. Uh-huh. And yeah, it took it in directions I wasn't expecting, and that's always interesting to me. But at the same time, you did a lot of shit I didn't want you to do. Just for the purpose of, oh, ha, ha, you thought he was going to go back to his real time, but now he's back in the cage. Yeah. Oh, great. Now you just made me dislike a character that you've made me really like for a whole season. Right. I mean, conflicted about, because he made some bad decisions. But yeah, I liked him. I liked Henry Deaver. And yeah, you end the show liking white Henry Deaver more than black Henry Deaver. Which is shitty. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it it subverts the whole like, oh, you thought white Henry Deaver was the devil. But like, no, nah, I wanted black Henry Deaver to be redeemed in some way. And no, he's just worse now. And it's not in a tragic sort of makes you think kind of way. It's just a, oh, that sucks. It's just a sour note to end the show on, so it's good that we got a little cheesy Jackie Torrance action at the end, I guess. I agree. All right, that was Castle Rock. Uh, You can be sure we'll talk about it again when the next season rolls around. In any case, that's the end of the episode. I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, do you have any words of wisdom to share with the audience? Remember, everyone, houses don't kill people. People kill people.
Not a lot of really good, like, memorable lines, are there? For God's sake, get out. That's the line on the actual poster. Apparently, in some foreign country, they that's what they named the movie. Because they misinterpreted the difference between the title and the tagline. And when they translated it, they thought, for God's sake, get out was the title. Apparently. I don't know. I'm hungry now. What? Where? Is there just a gigantic moth? Just Where? enormous? Where? I don't know. I just saw it floating in front of the bathroom door. No, I don't see anything. Look down at the ground. It was floating down. No, I don't see anything. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I guess it's the Amityville Horror. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Oh. I should probably put that here so I... Are you sure? Yeah. Um... um. <laughs> and Roland's like, what the fuck? Go to bed. <laughs> Why are we talking about this now? Um, no, he doesn't. Sorry. Oh, damn it. I just realized. I was going to refer to... I was going to refer to James Brolin as Mr. Barbara Streisand. <laughs> he's married to Barbara Streisand. Papa, can you hear Papa, me? Papa, can you hear me? Would you like to build a snowman? <laughs> It's from Deadpool 2, where in the the audio commentary, they talk about how at no point did anyone make a connection that they talk about Yentl a lot, <laughs> and they never mention the fact that Josh Brolin is Barbra Streisand's son-in-law. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> way off topic. <laughs> and he goes... Blind! Not there yet. Oh. I'm so sorry. I kept copious notes. I, I, you took more notes than I did. I don't know why, but I felt like I needed to document the process here so I could follow it because nothing fucking happens in this movie. Ugh. Anyway, in any case, that's the end of the episode. My name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. I didn't end it correctly. Hold on. I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. 